the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton engineering, Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today on the program, we're going to uh, talk with Giancarlo Canaparo. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage. Uh, we're going to talk about why court packing would be devastating to our constitutional republic. We'll also talk with Michael Martin. He's the new president and CEO of the um, Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, or ECFA. We're going to talk about a new report on how nonprofits and churches are faring during this pandemic. And finally, we'll share a classic interview with Stephen Mosier. He is the author most recently of Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the New Threat to World Order. All of that coming up today on The Georgine Rice Show. Also want to remind you, tomorrow is the vice presidential debate, the first and only, and it promises to be a rather historic event, particularly given uh, the pandemic and the, the likelihood, the possibility, I'll just put it that way, the possibility that either one of these uh, contenders could ultimately be the next president of the United States. Given the fact that uh, the majority of Democrats and a good uh, percentage of independents and Republicans believe that if Joe Biden were elected, he wouldn't uh, survive his first term. Now, that's speculation, of course, but that's the public perception. Anyway, that makes the vice presidential debate the the fact that President Trump is recovering from COVID-19 puts it in a, a bit of a different light. So that's coming up tomorrow evening. Make a note of it. Well, President Trump has instructed Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and other officials to halt negotiations for a new coronavirus relief bill until after the November elections. Well, that's left some scratching their heads, although the negotiations have literally gone nowhere. The announcement came hours after the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell pled with Congress to pass additional economic relief legislation. The Democrat-led House and Republican-majority Senate have been unable to agree on a price tag for the bill. Democrats have pushed for a $2.4 trillion package. Senate Republicans, they've been hesitant to pursue another round of massive government spending. Well, stocks plummeted following the president's tweets and the Dow Jones, S&P 500 and NASDAQ all dropped by over 1%. Nancy Pelosi is asking for $2.4 trillion to bail out poorly run, high-crime Democrat states, money that is in no way related to COVID-19. We made it a very uh, made a very generous offer of $1.6 trillion, and as usual, she's not negotiating in good faith. That's what the president wrote on Twitter on Tuesday. I have instructed my representatives to stop negotiating until after the election win, immediately after I win, we will pass a major stimulus bill. Well, earlier on uh, Tuesday, um, Powell said that failing to move forward with a relief bill could lead to a weak recovery, creating unnecessary hardship for households and businesses, and remarks to the National Association of Business Economics. By contrast, the risks of overdoing it seem for now to be smaller. Even if policy actions ultimately prove to be greater than needed, they will not go to waste. So the back and forth, well, it's no longer continuing until after the election, it would appear. 
Well, President Trump was discharged from Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on Monday evening, walking out of the hospital and returning to the White House, dressed in a Navy suit and tie, wearing a face mask. President Trump walked out of Walter Reed on his own. Upon walking out the doors of the hospital, he made a low fist pump and gave a thumbs up to the press as uh, he got into a black SUV to head to Marine One. Well, the president teased his return to the White House on Monday afternoon, saying he is feeling very good. Don't be afraid of COVID, the president tweeted. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. He added, I feel better than I did 20 years ago. Well, the president appeared to have his reelection campaign at the forefront of his thoughts shortly before departing the hospital, promising his followers. He will be back on the stump soon and blasting polls that show him trailing Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. Well, in other developments, um, Alex uh, Berenson praised Trump's uh, comments, don't be afraid of COVID tweet. The administration plans to block the FDA's guidelines that could delay coronavirus vaccines. And the president is sending out a video tweet after being discharged from the hospital. CNN, not surprisingly, blasted the president's departure from Walter Reed, saying this is the virus coming back to the White House. Of course, there is a medical facility at the White House. Washington Post's Jennifer Rubin calls to defund Walter Reed after the president announced his White House return. Laura Ingram says the mainstream media shows that they're unhappy people with the coverage of Trump's illness. Meanwhile, NBC's town hall has been panned as a Biden infomercial as critics are blasting the seemingly undecided voters. NBC's outdoor televised town hall with Democratic presidential contender Joe Biden in the swing state of Florida and hosted by moderator Lester Holt was roundly uh, panned by critics as an infomercial for the former vice president, lacking tough questions that challenge the candidate on his 47-year record. Critics pounced on the not-so-stimulating exchange between Biden and voters, with political reporter Mark Caputo saying NBC's town hall with Joe Biden and undecided voters, in quotes, in Miami didn't seem to have undecided voters, nor was it much of a Miami town hall, which would have uh, way more yelling and pointed um, questions. It was a TV show that doubled as a Biden infomercial. Can't blame him for doing it, end quote. Well, the town hall questions for Biden are pretty underwhelming thus far. McClatchy political correspondent uh, David Cantonese tweeted as well. Greg Price uh, uh, said, uh, adding, I just watched that entire hour-long NBC News town hall with Joe Biden. No questions about whether he will pack the court, nuke the filibuster, or add D.C. and Puerto Rico as states. That's Daily Caller's Greg Price. Later adding, there were also no questions about China. Well, in other uh, developments, Biden suggests that people were able to quarantine because some black woman was able to stock the grocery shelves in a viral clip. As a black woman, I'll keep my thoughts to myself for the moment. But, Joe, please. Uh, also, Mr. Biden takes a shot at uh, President Trump over wearing masks with a Twitter meme. The White House physician says that Trump may not entirely be out of the woods yet in the fight against the coronavirus. And the president plans to debate Biden on the 15th of October, despite his COVID-19 battle. My guess is others will ultimately decide if that is, in fact, the case. Well, the Texas police officer that allegedly in, uh, in, was involved in a shooting at a gas station on Saturday that resulted in the death of Jonathan Price, an African-American male, was arrested and charged with murder. Multiple reports have said Sean David Lucas, an officer at the Wolf City Police Department, was responding that night to a domestic disturbance call about a possible fight in progress. The statement from the uh, Texas Rangers read, the statement said Price 31, who is black, 
was reportedly involved in the disturbance. And when Lucas tried to detain him, he resisted in a non-threatening posture and began walking away. He apparently was there trying to break it up. Well, Lucas deployed his taser, fired his gun, striking Price, the statement alleged. Price, who was reportedly unarmed, died at a nearby hospital. The statement said that a preliminary investigation indicates the actions of Officer Lucas were not objectionably reasonable. Price's relatives described him as a model citizen, said he was trying to break up an argument between a man and a woman. In other developments, a, a Texas police officer has been placed on leave in the shooting death of 31-year-old man, and a police officer was killed in Myrtle Beach in a shooting that wounded another officer. Well, the U.S. attorney is uh, tapped, uh, who was rather tapped by uh, Barr to review processes and unmasking, um, has resigned the Department of Justice. And Southwest Airlines CEO is announcing pay cuts to avoid layoffs, furloughs, and other um, uh, tactics through 2021. Pelosi and Mnuchin, they have haggled over the coronavirus stimulus pack, which is a, a price tag. Talks were going to continue until the president's announcement just moments ago. And tech titan John McAfee has been indicted for tax evasion. Well, as I mentioned, President Trump is back in the White House. He says he feels uh, quite well. Uh, he then said of COVID-19, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. Congressman Jim Jordan said first President Trump beats James Comey and Robert uh, Mueller. Then he beats Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler. And now he beats COVID-19. God bless America. Senator Marsha Blackburn says President Trump has once again defeated China. Welcome home at real Donald Trump. Meanwhile, the former Vice President Biden says that he will make Roe versus Wade the law of the land if the Supreme Court overturns it. And he proudly tweeted on it from Jenna Ellis. This is what an autocrat actually looks like. Joe Biden claims he won't respect the Constitution, the Supreme Court or the separation of powers. Remember, in the debate, he said, I am the Democratic Party. This is disqualifying. Dan McLaughlin, he says Biden desperately laboring to alienate any pro-life voter who might have reservations about Donald Trump. Meanwhile, the latest bewildering statement from Joe Biden, the reason I was able to stay sequestered in my home was because some black woman was able to stock the grocery shelves. Thanks, Joe Biden. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Giancarlo Canaparo. He's the legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, we're going to talk about what court packing is and how it would devastate our constitutional republic coming up later this hour. Well, um, the media is piling on the president for not fearing the coronavirus. So look at a series of the frothy tweets from the media can be found in the Washington Examiner. There were uh, many others like this from uh, Jake Tapper that made themselves out to be the real heroes for showing more fear. Maureen Dowd insists that when Trump walked through the doors of uh, Walter Reed, they had a he had a stellar reputation. As he walked out 72 hours later, its reputation is in tatters. There's nothing Trump can't ruin. Now, what on earth is she talking about? I mean, just what stellar is uh, this breathless um, accusation uh, that uh, Walter Reed somehow has lost its reputation. A CNN reporter who complained Trump removed his mask once he got home was uh, the very same reporter who was caught on camera removing her mask the moment she thought the cameras were turned off. Perhaps the strangest tweet came from a Bloomberg reporter when we asked if anyone on medical team uh, recommended against taking Trump back to the White House. Each one of the uh, doctors shook their heads, no, but not very vigorously. 
well, there's a real story behind that. And again, there's a whole medical facility at the White House. It's not as if he was coming to my house where, you know, we've got Q-tips and a um, a mouth thermometer. Molly Hemingway says, "Okay, on behalf of the same part of the country, I have to ask, is there something we can do about the major media's complete mental breakdown that we're all witnessing right now? Legit worried about them. Sean Davis says the completely insane media reaction to everything Trump has done post coronavirus diagnosis makes sense when you realize that what they're really outraged about is that he's alive. That's probably true. Mitch McConnell says the Barrett hearings will continue as planned. Uh, He said yesterday, Judge Barrett's hearings will begin one week from today. Chairman Graham has all the tools to conduct a hybrid hearing, just like the 150 others the Senate has held this year. We will not stop working for the American people because Democrats are afraid they may lose a vote. A look at the left's uh, religious bigotry toward Amy Coney Barrett gives you a glimpse into what you might expect if they attend the hearings at all. Meanwhile, Governor Cuomo is threatening to shut down religious institutions because while he has no issues with the protests and riots, he finds religious people, especially Jews, are a problem and must be stopped. Well, the Supreme Court has reinstated South Carolina's ballot requirement. If you vote by mail in South Carolina, you need a witness to sign the ballot. The story notes Democrats had sought to have the requirement put on hold because of the coronavirus pandemic, but Republicans had defended it as de- uh, deferring, uh, rather deterring fraud. Teachers unions are continuing to keep children out of schools as they battle the wishes of parents who want schools reopened. And the Babylon Bee founder has... Um, had the campus speech she was scheduled for canceled. Cancel culture is filled with hate, even against satire that dares poke fun at their sacred cows. Well, Joe Biden said during the debate, I am the Democratic Party. Critics are tearing into Biden for saying wealthy people were able to stay home during the lockdown because some black woman was able to stock grocery shelves, which is usually um, left to high schoolers who are working part time. He also threatened religious freedom, suggesting Christians with certain traditional views are dregs of society. Democrats are pressing for virtual hearings, then suddenly change their minds when the GOP suggests the SCOTUS confirmation be done online. And the uh, Supreme Court uh, has sided with South Carolina in reinstating their common sense voting uh, practices. Third time's a charm. The CDC has reversed itself again, now saying the coronavirus is sometimes airborne. So you can pick which version of that you want to go with. The World Health Organization has estimated 10% of the world's population, or 760 million people, have contracted COVID-19. Well, Intel sources say CIA Director Gina Haspel is banking on Trump's loss to keep the Russiagate documents hidden. And U.S. Attorney John Bash, who was investigating unmasking requests by Obama officials, announces his resignation, taking a private sector job instead. The IRS is investigating the National Rifle Association's Wayne LaPierre for possible criminal tax fraud. Well, a Portland man was arrested after shattering a patrol car window and pepper spraying the interior. A teacher is asking the class which person they most admire. Well, when one 10-year-old replied, Donald J. Trump, the teacher kicked him out of the chat room. A Kentucky a court clerk who was jailed to five, for five years for refusing to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples in 2015 has lost her Supreme Court appeal. And in New York City, they've already eclipsed their um, murder total 
for all of last year. That's in New York City. Governor Andrew Cuomo used fake news against Jews to justify the lockdown. Now is uh, considering returning to that same uh, sort of lockdown against all religious peoples. And California wildfires have scorched a record four million acres. Perspective is key, however, in uh, looking at that. Well, a Florida man, a registered Democrat, allegedly requested a mail-in ballot for his dead wife. I'm sure he's not the only one, but there's one case. 140,000 cases of possible vote fraud have been cited in a new public interest legal foundation report. Well, on this day in history, 1536, English theologian and scholar William Tyndale, who was the first to translate the Bible into early modern English, is executed for heresy. 1927, the era of talking pictures arrives with the opening of The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson, a feature containing both silent and sound-synchronized sequences. On this day in history, 2004, the top U.S. arms inspector in Iraq, Charles Dufler, reports no evidence Saddam Hussein's regime produced weapons of mass destruction after 1991. On this day in history, 2014, the Supreme Court unexpectedly clears the way for a dramatic expansion of same-sex marriage in the United States as it rejected appeals from five states seeking to preserve their bans, effectively making such marriages legal in all 30 states. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, in the narrowest Senate confirmation of a Supreme Court justice in nearly a century and a half, Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed by a 50 to 48 vote. He is sworn in hours later. Well, a rapidly strengthening Hurricane Delta is taking aim at the resort hotspots of Mexico's northeastern Yucatan Peninsula before targeting the U.S. Gulf Coast later this week. The U.S. National Hurricane Center in Miami said Tuesday morning that Hurricane Delta is now a Category 4 storm, packing maximum sustained winds of 130 miles per hour as it's located about 315 miles east-southeast of Cozumel moving west-northwest at 16 miles an hour. The storm was upped from a Category 3 to a 4 between 10 a.m. this morning and about 11 uh, Eastern Daylight Time, with forecasters labeling the storm as dangerous. It rapidly intensified last night as a Category, or rather two, a Category 2. We're expecting it, unfortunately, to become a major hurricane and impact the Gulf Coast, according to uh, uh, meteorologists. We think Louisiana is in the crosshairs. The storm rapidly intensified overnight from having 80 per- mile per hour winds into a category four hurricane with 130 mile per hour gales and is expected to strengthen even further as it moves north into the Gulf of Mexico. Well, a massive um, wave of federal testing supplies may provide Oregon its best chance to drive down coronavirus spread low enough to eventually reopen schools to an on-site learning. That's according to a state uh, top health administrator. Well, the federal government has pledged to give Oregon 60 to 80,000 tests each week through the end of the year, presenting state officials with a limited window to identify more infections that so uh, uh, new cases. Well, state officials say there's no way those testing supplies would enable serial testing at schools and a full-scale immediate reopening, but they hope expanding testing and eligibility will allow them to identify and quarantine more spreaders of the virus, eventually curbing new cases to meet school reopening metrics set by the governor. One wonders if um, between the governor and the uh, education lobby, schools will ever reopen in 2020-21. Uh, we really think focusing these tests on driving down the prevalence uh, rate will get us to where we can open schools for the long haul and do so safely. That's a quote from Patrick Allen, the director of the Oregon Health Authority. But that optimism will be challenged on several fronts. 
Public health officials across the country worry spread could increase during the fall, as happened during the 1918 flu pandemic. Oregon lacks new screening sites to more easily access tests, and the tests have a shelf life of only about five months, leaving the state unable to stockpile those supplies. It's going to be a big challenge, according to uh, Patrick Allen with the Oregon Health Authority. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Giancarlo Canaparo. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll talk about what court packing is and how it would devastate our constitutional republic. Also in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Michael Martin. He is the new president and CEO of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, or ECFA. They have a new report on how churches and nonprofits are faring during this pandemic. When you have lots of major corporations downsizing, losing significant revenue and so on. So we'll get some perspective on that. And we'll share a class interview with Stephen Mosier. Bully of Asia is the title of his book, Why China's um, uh, Dream is the New Threat to World Order. All of that coming up later in today's uh, program. Well, the upcoming vice presidential debate will be dramatically different than the first presidential debate. At least we hope it will. The first presidential debate was a fast-moving clash of personalities with a lot of clutter and confusion. Now, my guess is this first uh, vice presidential debate will uh, perhaps be fast-moving, and there will be a clash of personalities, but maybe not so much clutter and confusion. Well, the vice presidential debate can move more slowly and be more informative in clarifying the difference between the two tickets at least one hopes. Well, the contrast between Vice President um, Mike Pence, Indiana's uh, uh, conservative and Senator Kamala Harris, San Francisco's radicalism is so great that this should be a debate focused on issues far more than personalities. The stage is set for a truly historic encounter. Vice President Pence believes in the historic America of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and American history. Senator Harris is uh, allied with the radicals who want to dramatically change America and who repudiate the founding fathers and the basic events which created America. Uh, Harris uh, was obvious when she uh, said to Stephen Colbert about the demonstrations and riots. She says they're not going to stop. This is a movement. I'm telling you, they're not going to stop before Election Day in November, and they're not going to stop after Election Day. And that should be everyone should take note of that on both levels. Um, That isn't uh, that this isn't they're not going to let up and they should not. And we should uh, we should not. I'm sorry, that was awkward, but it was a direct quote. I'm sure she delivered it more artfully than I just did. When the Los Angeles mayor cut one hundred and fifty million dollars from the city's uh, police budget, Harris said, I applaud Eric Garcetti, uh, Garcetti rather, uh, rather for doing what he's done. By contrast, Vice President Pence strongly favors supporting police and locking up um, criminals. Just some. One example of the difference between the two. He's worked with President Trump and the Attorney General William Barr on Operation Legend and other uh, federal efforts to arrest and prosecute violent criminals. Meanwhile, Harris supports efforts to get criminals out of jail. In June, she advocated for the public to fund bail for arrested suspects implicated in the uh, Floyd riots in Minneapolis. If you're able to chip in now to MN Freedom Fund, 
to help post bail for those protesting on the ground in Minneapolis. Now, of course, those who were charged, uh, many of whom were criminals who defaced and destroyed property and so on. Well, when she was asked about her support for convicted felons and other prisoners voting from uh, jail and whether that would include the Boston Marathon bomber while he is on appeal from his death sentence, she refused to rule it out, saying, I think we should have that conversation. Well, we were trying to have that conversation, which she declined to engage. Uh, Vice President Pence is strongly pro-life. Senator Kamala Harris is committed to repealing the Hyde Amendment that protects taxpayers from having to pay for abortion. She would support tax-paid abortions, and it's not clear if that would include the ninth month as uh, many Democrats advocate for. Vice President Pence is a strong supporter of the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment. Senator Harris has a robust plan to dramatically limit the right to own guns. Vice President Pence strongly supports constitutional conservative judicial nominees for federal courts and has supported all three of the president's pro-constitution nominees to the Supreme Court. Senator Harris was the most um, uh, vicious questioner of now Justice Brett Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings. Uh, She has opposed all three conservative nominees. She and Vice President Joe Biden refused to uh, issue a list of the kind of justices they would appoint to the Supreme Court. Uh, Parallel to their opposite positions on judges, the vice president believes in protecting religious liberties under the First Amendment. Senator Kamala Harris would sue nuns for not supporting a pro-abortion agenda. Um, Senator Harris' hostility to Catholics came out when she challenged one court nominee about his uh, member membership in the Knights of Columbus. She implied that if he was a faithful Catholic, he couldn't serve on the court. She uh, simply the most... um, Uh, by some measure, bigoted anti-Catholic nominee of a major party since the late 19th century. That's a quote, by the way. Vice President uh, Pence supports school choice and parents' rights to send their children to a good school in the absence of one in their own geographic area. Senator Harris is deeply opposed to school choice and favors a teacher's union-run bureaucratic school monopoly. Vice President Pence is a strong supporter of hydraulic um, fracturing, or fracking, I think most of us refer to it, which has given America's... um, uh, Energy independence created millions of jobs, lowered the cost of energy. Senator Harris on CNN said, there's no question I'm in favor of banning fracking. So, yes, and starting and starting with uh, what we can do on day one around public lands, right. And then there's uh, there has to be legislation. And this is uh, something I've uh, taken on in California. I have a history of working on this issue. And to your point, we have, which would be good to the point, uh, we have to just acknowledge that the the residual impact of fracking is enormous in terms of the impact on the health and safety of communities, end quote. Finally, where Vice President Pence is for enforcing our immigration laws, Senator Harris is for eliminating criminal charges for entering the United States without permission. As she put it on CNN after one of the Democratic primary debates, it should be a civil enforcement issue, but not a criminal enforcement issue. Furthermore, she would provide government health care and free education for all immigrants in the country illegally, inserting, and I'm quoting, I'm opposed to any uh, policy that would deny in our country any human being from access to public safety, public education, or public health, period. The gap between the conservative vice president and the uh, uh, left-wing uh, senator from San Francisco is so great, this could be a tremendously powerful clash of ideas and policy, and more clarifying, I think, than the presidential debate uh, that didn't uh, that generated a lot of heat, but not necessarily much light. This could get to be a truly historic encounter. Uh, encounter rather with two uh, very different views, um, worldviews, ideological positions, and understanding of what a constitution, uh, a constitutional republic slash democracy um, is all about. 
Meanwhile, President Trump confirmed on Tuesday that he will participate in the upcoming presidential debate after being briefly hospitalized for coronavirus infection. Now, my guess is he fully intends to, but others will determine whether or not that will be the case. The president did tweet that I'm looking forward to the debate on the evening of Thursday, October 15th in Miami. It will be great. Uh, White House spokesman uh, Alicia Farah confirmed the decision in an appearance on Fox News. Well, the president, as you know, was hospitalized with COVID-19 at Walter Reed uh, Medical Center on Friday after his blood oxygen levels dropped and the White House physicians were compelled to administer supplemental oxygen. However, doctors approved the president's return to the White House on Monday following improvements in his condition. Guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention state that a person infected with coronavirus can remain contagious for 10 days following the onset of symptoms. The October 15th debate will take place two weeks after the president tested positive for the illness. It's not clear what will happen if Trump still tests positive for coronavirus on the day of the debate. Both the president, who is 74 years old, and Democratic opponent Joe Biden, 77, are in the age group at greatest risk for serious complications. The vice presidential debate on Wednesday will feature plexiglass barriers separating the candidates, uh, Vice President Mike Pence and California Senator Kamala Harris. Those barriers were requested by the Biden-Harris campaign because the Pence, uh, Pence's proximity to a number of senior Republicans who have tested positive for coronavirus. Pence has consistently tested negative for the virus, and we hope that remains the case. Well, on Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court began its uh, fall term, and the justices quickly got down to business by issuing a ruling in favor of preserving voting integrity. The high court sided with the uh, GOP in South Carolina, restoring the state's voting law that required all absentee ballots uh, to include a witness signature. The ruling overturns a lower court's decision to waive the Palmetto State's witness requirement due to COVID-19. Writing for the majority, Justice Brett Kavanaugh argued, for many years, this court has repeatedly emphasized that the federal courts ordinarily should not alter state election rules in the period close to an election. Unfortunately, the court's decision will not apply to ballots that uh, have already been cast or to those mailed within the next two days. Nevertheless, this is a big win for President Trump and the Republicans as it legitimizes their concerns regarding voter fraud. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Giancarlo Canaparo. He's a legal fellow. We'll talk about why um, court packing, what it is, and why it would be devastating to a constitutional republic. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump nominated Judge Amy Coney Barrett in September to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Senator Edward Markey says if Republicans confirm Judge Barrett, and it seems that they probably will, uh, in response, the Democrats are going to end the filibuster and expand the Supreme Court. In other words, if at first you don't succeed, rig the rules. Well, that's uh, one way of putting it. What does it mean to pack the Supreme Court and ending the filibuster? What does it mean and why is it important? Well, here to talk with us about that is Giancarlo Canaparo. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. 
Well, there's a lot of discussion these days about packing the Supreme Court, although it's difficult to get a straight answer from some um, political candidates at this point. But there have been many, Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren, Richard Blumenthal, Sheldon Whitehouse, Nancy Pelosi, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and others who seem to uh, signal that, yeah, we're interested in doing this if the Republicans uh, confirm uh, Justice or Judge uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Let's begin by talking about what it means to pack the Supreme Court and a bit of the history, what the Constitution charges the House uh, with doing and why this is a questionable idea. Yeah, you're right. So we'll start with, um, uh, I'll echo your point that this has become very much a mainstream idea among uh, Democratic members of Congress, uh, but um, not an answer, but not something we can get an answer from on the Democratic, from the Democratic presidential candidate. Um, but what court packing would mean is simply um, by legislation, expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court so that you can make sure uh, that you have a majority that agrees with you politically. Now, the Constitution doesn't set uh, any limits on the number of Supreme Court justices, and with the exception of you know, the five years of the, uh, the Civil War, uh, nine has been the number for just under 200 years. And it's a good number. It works. Justice Ginsburg said, you know, nine is a good number. She was right. The reason that it's a good number, it, uh, you know, there's a long 200-year tradition of it, but it's, uh, it's an odd number, so you always have a majority. Uh, it's a workable, it's, it's low enough that it's workable, but it's high enough that you've got a diversity of minds, uh, uh, you know, nine viewpoints to argue and debate and refine ideas. Uh, and uh, so that's that's the history of, of the Supreme Court. Now, to change the number, you could do it uh, by an act of Congress passed by uh, both houses and signed uh, by the president. But to get there, uh, realistically, because the Senate uh, has what's called the filibuster, and that means that unless you can get uh, you know, more than uh, 66 people to vote on it, uh, you're not going to get uh, legislation through. So, uh, I'm sorry, 60 votes, not 66. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you get 60 votes, uh, you can un- you can overcome a filibustering and get legislation passed through the Senate. Uh, and so Democrats, knowing that it's extremely unlikely that they're going to take uh, at least 60 seats in the Senate, uh, have decided, well, with a bare majority, we should get rid of the filibuster rule so that we can pack the court uh, with a bare majority of both houses of Congress. So that is the overview. Uh, of court packing and how you get it. Now, this isn't the first time there's been an effort to pack the court. Back in 36, President Franklin Roosevelt proposed creating and filling additional judicial positions. But at that time, even though the Democrats enjoyed uh, enormous Senate and House supermajorities, they uh, rejected his uh, court packing plan. So this isn't the first time it's come in, come around, but the Democrats back in 36 said, no, this is a bad idea. And the reason for that is it really is contrary to the separation of powers that the framers had intended um, when they designed this um, this system. Yeah, you know, it was Chief Justice William Rehnquist, and he said that the independent judiciary is the crown jewel of the American system. And that has held true for a long period of time in our history, including, like you said, the 30s. Uh, FDR was, was very frustrated that the Supreme Court was not going along with his you know, radical transformation of the American government and economic life through his New Deal. And so he said, well, I'll just pack the court. I'll, I'll increase the number of judges and put a whole bunch of political stooges up there who will do what I want. And uh, like you said, the House and the Senate were both Democratic supermajorities. They could have done it. 
uh, at the snap of their fingers. But they said, the Democrats in Congress said, no, no, no. That is a dangerous thing to do. Uh, the, the Senate Judiciary put out a report, and one of the and part of that report said the ultimate effect of packing the court would undermine their independence and expand political control over the judicial department. And the problem with that, you know, if the courts are political, you can't trust that you're going to get blind justice. Uh, you can't trust that Lady Justice's scales are balanced. Uh, you know, and that is that impartiality is essential to the working of the judiciary and packing the court for political purposes would totally undermine that. And that's why the Senate Judiciary Report in the 30s said, look, if you want to do this, if you want to uh, uh, get the court to start doing what you want, you need to go through the normal process. When justices retire or die, you get to appoint people and we get to advise and consent. That's the Senate. And uh, that's how we're going to do this. We're going to play by these rules because to do otherwise, is just too dangerous. And in the end, that is what, uh, what, that's what Roosevelt did, having been president for so long. Uh, he got to fill uh, a majority of the uh, seats on the Supreme Court just by uh, time. Well, in addition to changing the legislative process itself, um, which is part of what is, uh, is being proposed, um, it would, uh, the court's independence would be uh, gone. It would take on an even larger role in deciding political questions, which is convenient for some in Washington who can't persuade the American people through the political process, have relied more heavily upon the court um, to do what they cannot do through the legislative process. So maybe you can summarize what's at stake if we were to move in this direction and why it's important to hear directly from the um, vice presidential candidates and uh, Joe Biden what their uh, intention would be if given the opportunity to to serve uh, in Washington. Yeah, absolutely. What court packing represents in the long run is nothing short of a total restructuring of the federal government. And you hit on this point earlier. The uh, Congress has the power to legislate for the general welfare, but it needs majority support to do that. Um, but if the court and, and the and the flip side of that is that Congress is accountable to the people, right? You can kick them out of office, you can put them in office. You can't do any of that with the court. So if the court becomes the political body, the one that is doing what uh, it decides a bare majority of the people think it ought to do, well, you can't kick them out of office. You can't uh, reverse what they what they do. You can't take away their legislation. That is a humongous power to put in the hands of people who are completely unaccountable to the people. And if the Democrats do it uh, the next time that they get control of the presidency in both houses of Congress uh, and they pack the court, you can be sure that the next time Republicans sweep into power, and they will because such is the nature of our cyclical political cycle, that they will pack the court uh, to try to balance it out again. And you will have this cycle where soon enough the Supreme Court We'll have as many people in it as Congress is, has, and we'll be doing Congress's job, and Congress won't be doing anything, and the people won't have a say in the government whatsoever. In a Daily Signal column that you co-authored, you point out that no government so unstable could last. Packing the court will only ever yield short-term political victories at the cost of the long-term health of our republic. So there's a grave danger to moving in this direction, and because Everything has been so politicized. Uh, I really question whether or not there'll be sufficient pushback um, if this effort is uh, attempted in the next congressional um, session. 
And if the um, um, Trump administration manages to successfully confirm uh, Justice Barrett. Well, you know, we'll see. And that's why it's so important to get um, uh, Vice President Biden's position on this. Yes. Uh, because it does seem that the Democrats in Congress are, are full steam ahead. And, um, you know, this is a terrible idea. And we just don't know if Biden gets elected, is he going to uh, stand up to them? Is he going to go along with them? We don't know. But but the implications for the nature of American government and the people's uh, ability to be involved in their government are enormous. Yeah, absolutely. Giancarlo, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your insight. It's my pleasure. Again, Giancarlo Canaparo is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Michael Martin with the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability on how nonprofits are faring during this pandemic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, we've all been under the um, quarantine of COVID-19. That pandemic is stretched into its seventh month, and many U.S. companies like American Airlines and Disney and Shell and so many others are conducting unprecedented mass layoffs and furloughs. But that apparently is not the case for most Christian ministries. Well, that's good news, according to a new report from the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Here to talk with us about that report is Michael Martin. He is the new president and CEO of ECFA with this report on um, how nonprofits are faring. Michael Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Georgine. Appreciate the opportunity to share about this some great news in this survey. Well, absolutely. In fact, I think a lot of people would find this surprising given the unemployment rate, given the challenges that we're facing. First of all, tell us about the report and um, what you intended to discover in surveying uh, Christian ministries. Absolutely. So, yeah, the report is titled Optimism Yet Again, Financial Hope Grows Despite the Prolonged pandemic. So I think the title of the survey report says it all, but mm-hmm. our really our focus was um, in light of this prolonged pandemic that we're seeing, um, how are churches and nonprofit ministry funds holding up? And in, in particular, how are finances fueling ministry right now? Uh, I'm an optimistic person, but I have to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised to see just how high the optimism levels have remained. Well, I think many of us are pleasantly surprised. We would assume that the first thing to go would be giving to organizations um, that uh, would be considered perhaps extra <laughs> given our current circumstances. So are, are believers giving more steadily? Are they pressing into these organizations? How do you explain this optimistic result? Yes, well, I think one of the amazing things that we have seen is just you know, the resiliency of givers, uh, God's people who are remaining faithful to give in these times. Yeah, one of the things that we were able to see is that more than 50% of the organizations that we surveyed, which we drew over 1,500 responses, so this was, this was a good number of organizations that we surveyed, more than 50% said that year-to-year giving is the same or higher uh, at this point in late August as it was compared to the prior year. But, uh, Georgine, one of the things that I think that we saw is that as ministries, as churches and ministries have um, continued to pivot uh, in meeting needs uh, that organizations uh, have been out there in front serving, 
givers have responded and said, you know, look, we want to continue to support the great work of ministries during these times. Mm, Again, that's encouraging. Now, is there a distinction made in this report between churches where people are tithing and giving offerings and nonprofits who serve as Christian ministries but serve in other ways? Right. No, that's a great question. So what we found is that really the um, the experiences between churches and nonprofits has been actually pretty similar in terms of both groups have seen that, for the most part, the donations that have been made at this time, uh, you know, this year compared to uh, the same period last year, uh, you know, have actually, for the most part, continued to rise, of course, uh, we know that there are certain organizations and certain segments that have been impacted more significantly than others, so we're, we're sensitive to that as well, even though overall we're seeing a good picture. One of the more interesting contrasts, though, from this most recent survey is we actually saw that within nonprofits, as compared to churches, the optimism level uh, among nonprofits as they look ahead uh, to the next month uh, with giving Nonprofits were showing increased, a higher level of increased optimism uh, this time around than the last survey that we took, which was three months ago. Mm. Now, was there a distinction, for example, among nonprofits that minister to people here in the U.S. as opposed to international outreach? Did you find any um, difference in terms of giving and optimism given those uh, two different kinds of uh, ministry outreaches? Sure. Well, what I'll share is, um, you know, just kind of looking at the, we did within nonprofits, you know, do a breakdown, especially because we saw this increased level of optimism within nonprofits as we wanted to parse that data out just a bit. And so I'll tell you that some of the the um, organizations, the nonprofits that had the highest levels of optimism were denominations, which was interesting, very high levels of optimism, almost 90%. And then Hmm. from there, rescue missions reported very high levels, uh, radio, media, community development, uh, missions uh, here within the United States was next, and then also orphan care. All of those ministries uh, really reported optimism levels at 70% or higher. And then not, not too far behind that, we also saw international missions as well. Again, very uh, very encouraging and surprising, I, I would uh, say, given our current circumstances. Now, for listeners who aren't familiar with the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, talk a little bit about your work in general that produced this report that gives us a glimpse into how we're doing as the body of Christ in terms of giving to ministries that minister to us and abroad. Yes, absolutely. So ECFA is uh, an organization that we've been around for the last 41 years, and uh, we help accredit Christ-centered churches and nonprofits that are committed to high standards of integrity in areas like their board governance, financial management, and also their fundraising practices. And so when you see as a giver uh, that ECFA seal um, on an organization, on a ministry, uh, that's to help signify Um, There's really a rigorous process that they have to go in order to maintain that accreditation. Um, And so that helps just inspire confidence in knowing that the organization that you're giving to, especially in times like these where there's so much uncertainty, uh, giving to organizations that you can trust. And so that's Mm -hmm. really our mission. And we're coming up on almost 2,500 of those organizations that have been ECFA accredited. 
Well, so appreciate the work that you do that gives us that uh, little boost of, uh, of of confidence that the organizations we're considering uh, are under some uh, oversight. Now, let me ask how COVID-19 has impacted your work. I know that you hold other ministries accountable and provide much needed uh, information for those of us who are considering being uh, donors. But how has this uh, pandemic impacted your work? Yes. Well, what I will say is much like we've seen even in the, these survey reports, this, these are one of the you know, great examples of resources that we've been trying to provide to ministries during these times. But the number of uh, ECFA accredited organizations has actually continued to grow this year, even in spite of the pandemic impact. And I think, again, that just is a testimony to the the good work, kingdom work that's continuing to go forward, but organizations that, that know it's important to continue to uphold high standards of financial integrity during these times. So we're continuing to see the number of members of ECFA grow. And then also our team has been really busy here during these times. It's, uh, you know, folks are looking, ministry leaders, especially looking for resources and information to help navigate these times. So this latest survey report, Optimism, yet again, uh, just another example of some of the great resources that our team has been faithful to produce. And I have to give credit to Dr. Warren Bird, who's a PhD researcher, who's one of the outstanding members of our team who helped put together this report. Excellent. Now, for listeners who would like to read more about this report or for mysteries that are interested in um, availing themselves of the tremendous work that you're doing, what's the best way for our listeners to connect? Yes. Well, it's very easy just on our website, which is ecfa.org. And then if you're looking specifically uh, to take a look through this survey, uh, there's a landing page, ecfa.org slash surveys. Well, I so appreciate uh, this survey in particular, but the work that you all do in general and have done for decades now and want to encourage listeners who'd like to learn more to uh, check out the website and certainly ministries who are interested in connecting. uh, This is a great uh, resource, not only for you, but for uh, those you serve as well. Well, Michael Martin, uh, congratulations, first of all, being the new president and CEO of ECFA. And thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Georgine. Bye-bye. Uh, Michael Martin, the uh, new president and CEO of the uh, of ECFA. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to share a classic interview with Stephen Mosier. He's the author of Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream and the new uh, is rather the new threat to world order. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I've looked forward to the conversation we're just about to share with Stephen Mosier, who's one of America's leading China experts. And he's arguing that the Chinese Communist Party is responsible for both the origin and the global spread of the Wuhan flu. Now, disturbing news from China has been dominating the headlines for the past few weeks. The world now lives in fear that the China coronavirus will kill millions. But if we want to stop the spread of the deadly virus, social distancing and medicines like chloroquine are not enough. My next guest argues that the world, led by the United States, must not only isolate the virus, it must isolate and punish the source of the scourge, China itself. Stephen Mosier, once again, one of America's leading China experts, author of um, the uh, celebrated book, Bully of Asia. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. Well, it's very good to be with you, uh, uh, Georgine. I know that we've talked before, but boy, yes. we have uh, a lot of news outside of China, out, out of China, and 
news, unfortunately, that's affected the health and well-being of the whole world. Uh, we knew for years, of course, that the Chinese Communist Party was a danger uh, to the Chinese people. All you have to do is look at the death toll uh, that has been racked up for the last 70 years. I mean, tens of millions of Chinese have been killed by famine, by political persecutions, uh, by prisoners being executed for their organs. The concentration camps have, uh, have uh, spread all over China. But now, of course, we see the Chinese Communist Party is not just a threat to the Chinese people, but a threat to the entire world, uh, which puts it in a rather different light, doesn't it? It really does. Let's talk about what we know about the role that China played in uh, making the, uh, or should I say, um, the origin of this, uh, this pandemic. What do we know about what the, the Chinese did? Was this a deliberate act? Was this inadvertent? Uh, and is the primary concern what happened after um, COVID-19 or the coronavirus was uh, released? Well, I mean, we, we, what we have here is, is a, a whole a series of, of errors and, and misdeeds and deception uh, by the communist, Chinese Communist Party from the outset. And it's bad enough, of course, that they hid the epidemic. They weren't transparent. They lied about human-to-human transmission. All that we know already. But what we now need to focus on is the fact that I believe that this virus, this coronavirus, uh, was created in the Wuhan Institute of Virology by a woman by the name of Dr. Shir. Her full name in Chinese is Shir Zhengli. I speak, read, and write Chinese, by the way, as you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's known as China's Batwoman. And China's Batwoman was in the business of not just collecting Uh, bat coronaviruses by the hundreds and keeping them in her lab. She was also in the business of creating new and deadly coronaviruses. Now, some of her work has actually been published in scholarly journals. There's a 2008 article in the Journal of Virology, and she described there how she was taking harmless coronaviruses from horseshoe bats. I mean harmless because they weren't capable of infecting human beings, right? They were bat viruses, not human viruses. But then she was doing this. She was genetically engineering them to be able to infect human beings, just like the original SARS virus does, that deadly SARS virus. So she was taking harmless viruses and splicing in parts of the deadly SARS virus to make them uh, potentially uh, deadly pathogens to infect and kill human beings. Uh, why would you even do that? Yeah, that Let was my question. About that for a minute. But... but well, the, the, reason, the reason you would do that, uh, according to virologists who are getting paid lots of money to do this kind of research, which is called gain-of-function research. What kind of functions does the virus gain? Well, it gains the ability to kill and infect human beings. That's what gain-of-function research is all about. It gain, you know, it's enhanced. Uh, it enhances the virus's ability, lethality, and infectiousness. And you ask yourself, you know, why would we be funding such efforts? Well, the answer was the, the virologists came to the U.S. government and they said, uh, give us money and we will create superbugs in the laboratory. And once we create these superbugs, these deadly viruses, we will investigate them. We will develop therapies against them. Uh, we, will, we will develop vaccines against them. And when the next pandemic erupts on the world, when the next coronavirus escape, you know, escapes from nature into human beings, uh, we'll be ready for it. Well, that's all fun and games until what? Until the new deadly superbug escapes from the lab before you have a vaccine, before you have therapies, before you have any idea how to deal with it. And, and I believe that's what happened in the Wuhan Institute of Virology lab run by Dr. Sher. We know she was doing secret research there. 
there was the public research that she was doing, and then there was the secret research. In other words, some of the bat coronaviruses she was isolating and studying, she didn't report in Cell Magazine or the Journal of Virology or the Journal of Infectious Disease. She kept it to herself. The result of this research wasn't, weren't published, although I think that China's leaders knew what she was doing. Uh, they were briefed on it. Uh, we don't know how many ways she tried to, to enhance uh, this one bat coronavirus uh, that's known as RATG13, but she kept it secret for 13 years. And finally, I believe she was able to tinker with it until she made it much more deadly and much more infectious than it was originally. And then what happened? It leaked from the lab. How does that happen? Uh, presumably, this is a, a laboratory that has um, redundancy in terms of protecting what, what can and cannot escape from the facility. How does that happen? I think most people I'm hearing suggest that this was inadvertent. It wasn't deliberate. But how might that happen? And why would the Chinese government not immediately call upon the international community? And if you know anything about the communist Chinese government, it may have already answered the question to try to yeah. prevent this from spreading. Right. Well, first of all, we know we know now we didn't know then, but we know now how highly infectious uh, the Wuhan virus is. Right. The China coronavirus. It can be transmitted uh, by almost casual contact. It can be transmitted by droplets in the air, not as lethal as we once thought, but highly infectious, which means what? Which means that in the lab, you have to be very, very careful all the time to perfectly practice proper lab safety procedures. You cannot violate protocol because if you do, if you slip even for an instant, this highly infectious coronavirus is going to infect you. Now, we know that the safety protocols in the Wuhan Institute of Virology were not very well kept. We know that. Because we know the training and practices of Dr. Schur's lab uh, were not up to snuff. We know that because even the World Health Organization refused to grant it certification. You know the same World Health Organization that has been covering up and lying for China for months? Mm -hmm. They refused to say that this lab meets international standards for a level four biosecurity lab, high containment lab. And we know also that the State Department sent two scientists down to the Wuhan Institute back in 2018. They came back shaking their heads saying, this isn't being run as a level four high containment lab. It's being run maybe as a level two lab, uh, a low containment lab. I would say, Georgie, it's being run as a no containment lab because it got out. It got out by infecting a lab worker. Uh, either the lab worker was handling, carelessly handling an infected animal with this new and dangerous enhanced virus that Dr. Schur had created, or maybe the lab worker was handling the coronavirus itself, the isolate in a test tube directly. Either way, someone got sick, and then it spread like wildfire throughout the densely populated city of Wuhan. I mean, by late December 2019, this virus was all over the city of Wuhan. And, uh, and then, of course, it gets really interesting because the, the Wuhan Institute was getting desperate to cover up its, its responsibility. It, it covered up its complicity in this. What might have been the outcome if the uh, Wuhan Institute itself had responsibly responded and if the Chinese government had responsibly been transparent rather than deceitful in informing the international community and seeking the help that it clearly needs? What might the outcome have been? Well, the, the University of Nottingham in, in England 
uh, published a study saying that 95% of the infections and deaths around the world could have been prevented if the World Health Organization, if the Chinese government had been transparent from the beginning. But let's go back even further. Let's go back to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. As soon as that first lab worker got sick, and we believe she died, I think we know what her name is, and began to infect others, the Wuhan Institute of Virology at that point should have said, it leaked from our lab, you know, we're sorry, we have to stop this. It could have been contained with probably a few hundred or a couple thousand infections and very few deaths. Instead, they tried to cover it up. The city of Wuhan tried to cover it up. The province of Hubei tried to cover it up. And, of course, the government of China tried to cover it up and let millions and millions of people, some of whom were infected with the dangerous new lab-created coronavirus, fly all around the world. But get this, Georgine, uh, they wanted, the Wuhan Institute wanted to deny that their virus, that they had isolated, this RATG13, was the basis for the, the SARS-2 virus. So what they did was they registered it on January 27th of this year. When did they find it? Well, they found it in 2013. So for seven mm-hmm. years, they were doing dangerous recombinant you know, technological research on this, splicing and dicing it, making it more infectious and deadly. And then only after it escaped from the lab did they say, oh, by the way, uh, we isolated the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the precursor. We isolated the basic uh, coronavirus back uh, seven years ago. We just didn't happen to tell you. Oh, oh, boy. We're going to need to take a break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Stephen Mosier, one of America's leading China experts, arguing that the Chinese Communist Party is responsible for both the origin and the global spread of the Wuhan flu that has implications for U.S. foreign policy. We'll get into that in just a few minutes, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Stephen Mosher. He is the author of Bully of Asia and uh, one of America's leading China experts. I've enjoyed your work for many, many years and appreciate your being with us here today. We were talking about the role that the Chinese um, government has played, as well as the virologists who are responsible for creating this pandemic that we are currently facing. But you argue that uh, there's, there are implications for U.S. foreign policy and that the United States and, for that matter, the rest of wor- the world must hold uh, the People's Republic of China accountable and responsible for what has happened uh, and that there must be repercussions. What should the U.S. response be, given what we are now facing and what we now know? Well, I, I think it's very clear that, that what the Chinese Communist Party did was declare biowarfare on the entire world. I'm not saying that this, this uh, superbug, this coronavirus, was, was designed to be a bioweapon. But dangerous, risky research was being conducted in a lab uh, that, that did not meet the safety requirements. It leaked out. It's the responsibility of the Chinese Communist Party from the beginning uh, for its origin for the leak and, of course, for its spread around the world. So, I mean, I think it's clear that we who thought uh, that the Chinese uh, government was a threat to its neighbors, a military threat, uh, we thought it was a threat on trade terms because they were cheating on trade and, and uh, debasing their currency and, and stealing $600 billion, billion dollars, that's billion with a B, of uh, critical technology, intellectual property from the U.S. every year. We thought that was bad. But some people were saying in the finance community and the guys who run the big box stores were saying, yeah, but, you know, uh, China makes those goods really cheaply, and so we're getting some benefit because Chinese products are cheap. Well, if you factor in, Georgine, the cost to the world and to the U.S. economy of the 
coronavirus pandemic, uh, Chinese made in China goods no longer seem so cheap, do they? In fact, they seem no. like they, they cost a lot of money. Anybody who's lost a job, anybody who's seen their business go bankrupt, anybody who's gotten sick, anybody who's seen a family member die, the cost is too much to bear. So we have to disengage from China. We, had, we need a hard decoupling from the Chinese economy because it's a threat across all domains, military, strategic, economic. Now it's a threat uh, uh, to our very health and well-being. One of the things that we are hearing is that China shipped defective masks, PPE, and uh, other medical supplies uh, to countries around the world, Spain and the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, that before um, disclosing what was happening, they had uh, essentially taken up the world's supply of, uh, of, of PP&E for their own use. Um, what are the implications of not only providing for its own people, but then uh, spewing out defective uh, masks and other resources to the rest of the world? Well, it just it just deepens their 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 culpability for everything that's happened. Imagine this: China is facing knows it's facing a pandemic in early January. It's determined to spread it around the world. But as that is happening, the word goes out to Chinese agents all around the world to buy up all of the PPE, all of the masks, all the respirators, all the ventilators they can get their hands on. Uh, we went to our local store here in Florida. Uh, when I first heard about the the viral outbreak in China, because I said this is much more serious than the Chinese Communist Party is admitting, uh, we got we got to our local pharmacy a day too late, and we were told by the clerk, uh, someone from China just came in and bought up our entire supply. <laughs> I mean, huh. they were they were vacuuming up PPE from all over the world. They completely depleted. For I have Australian friends, they completely depleted Australia's supplies, and so when the pandemic reached Australia's shores, people looked around and said, uh, where's the PP, where are the respirators and ventilators we're supposed to have? They were all shipped to China. And then in response to the world's pleas for help, China then ships defective equipment, defective tests, uh, defective PPE all around the world, and they charge an arm and a leg for it. They buy it on the cheap, and then they sell it dear. Uh, That's called, I don't know, profiting from a pandemic that you caused uh, how much more despicable does it get than that? You're profiting off people's misery. China is uh, promoting, and you make this point, the bizarre theory that the Wuhan flu is a made-in-America bioweapon that was released in China in an act of germ warfare. Is that resonating anywhere, or is that just laughable everywhere? Well, it, 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 may, be, it may be catching on a little bit in China because the 94 million members of the Chinese Communist Party, the largest party and political party in the world, it's actually not a a party, really. It's a organized conspiracy. But the 94 million members of the Chinese Communist Party have been told to spread the rumor that the, the, uh, the virus did not originate in Wuhan. It originated at our bio labs in Fort Detrick, Maryland. It was brought to China during the military games by the U.S. Army in late October, and it was deliberately used to infect China. And you can go to markets today in China where they have a sign before you go on the market saying, uh, in order to combat the American virus, the American virus, in order to combat the American virus, the announcement reads, uh, please wear your face mask and gloves. Uh, they're calling it the American virus. They're convincing some Chinese, not all Chinese, that it's true because they're waging a major propaganda campaign. But I think they're really admitting more than they intend to, because by calling it a bioweapon, uh, by saying that it originated in a lab, uh, by saying that it was deliberately uh, brought to China, they're really condemning themselves. 
because in fact it was made in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It did leak from the lab and it was inflicted, uh, but not by America, by the misdeeds of the Chinese Communist Party on the Chinese people and the world. That's what really happened. Does the United States bear any responsibility for underwriting some of the work they were doing, albeit under um, the misnomer that this was in order to develop vaccines for future pandemics? But does the United States bear any responsibility for the financing of some of this work? Well, we had back in, 20, uh, in 2010, 2011, we had a big debate in the scientific community in the United States. And many scientists argued that the risk of creating superbugs in the lab outweighed the possible benefits. And I know that Dr. Fauci back in 2011, or the famous Dr. Anthony Fauci now, Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2011 in the pages of the Washington Post argued that the research was definitely worth doing because it could be used to prevent uh, the emergence of a future pathogen uh, of pandemic potential. Well, he won that argument. Uh, Hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent over the last few years funding this research. But in the United States in 2014, six years ago, we called a halt to it because the scientists kept saying, this is too risky, we should stop. They kept doing the research in China after we called a halt to it here, and it kept being funded, uh, not just in China, but around the world by grants from the National Institutes of Health. So, yeah, some of this research was being funded by the National Institutes of Health. I think most of that research was the stuff that Dr. Schur, the famous Batwoman, was actually publishing in, in international journals. Mm-hmm. I think her secret research was probably being funded by you know, the, the uh, Chinese People's Liberation Army. But nonetheless, any money that comes into a lab is fungible, can be used for any purpose you want. So we were, we were to an extent underwriting this research, and you've got to hand it to President Trump because as soon as he found out that money was going to the lab, he said, uh, not one penny more. Yeah. You make the point that China is projecting a facade of international cooperation, but what they're actually doing is using the crisis that they created to achieve for President uh, uh, Xi Jinping presidency for life, uh, which is his dream of uh, world domination. The, the Chinese uh, character for, 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 for crises is composed of two parts, one of which means danger and the other which means opportunity. They saw the danger early on uh, to the Chinese economy of this raging epidemic. And I think uh, the opportunity they seized was the opportunity to spread it around the world. I think the view of the uh, Chinese communist leadership was that if we're going to go down, uh, we're going to take the rest of the world with us. And of late, they have been buying companies overseas at fire sale prices. They bought, uh, last month, they brought, bought British Steel for a fraction of what it was worth. Why? Because the economy of Great Britain is in the tank because of the China virus. And so they were able to purchase it, you know, for pennies on the dollar. So they're going around looking for bargains. It's almost as if someone, you know, puts out bad information about a company uh, on the Internet. And then when the stock price is depressed, goes in and picks it up at fire sale prices. This shouldn't be allowed. We should put sharp restrictions on China's ability to buy American companies at this particular juncture when the stock prices are depressed because they will be out there in predatory fashion trying to to turn the danger into an opportunity for them to get a leg up on the rest of the world. Now, I I think we're very, very blessed to have in office now a a businessman who spent his entire adult life 
uh, reading bottom lines, making investment, understanding tax policy and regulatory policy, because he's exactly the man who can bring the, Amer- the American economy back, I think, a lot faster than Chinese economy will come back. You know, the geniuses who run the Chinese Communist Party can't be everywhere. They can't understand everything. They've made a lot of missteps throughout this whole process. They will continue in doing so. And so I think we're going to come out stronger and China is going to come out weaker in all this. I think our overall policy ought to be exactly what President Reagan's policy was towards the Soviet Union. Uh, Reagan, for whom I once wrote a couple of speeches, was asked, what's our policy towards the USSR? And he said, we win, they lose. We win, they lose. That ought to be our policy towards the People's Republic of China. America wins, the PRC loses. Stephen Mosier, author of Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the New Threat to World Order. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It's always an honor to have you on the program. It's good to be here. It's an honor to be with you, Georgine. Thank you so much. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show final segment. Well, the Bible has now been translated in its entirety into more than 700 different languages. That means that over 5.7 billion people now have both the Old and New Testaments in their native tongue. Now, this is exciting because we want to usher in the second coming of Jesus. We want to be faithful with the Great Commission, and this is certainly a tool that makes that um, more possible. Well, according to Wycliffe uh, Bible Translations, uh, the milestone was reached in uh, recent weeks. The 700 total involves uh, complete Bibles with all 66 books translated. James Poole, who is the executive director of Wycliffe Bible Translators, said the, mil- the milestone rather represents the tremendous work that Bible translators are doing across the world. Now, you're never going to read a headline that says Bible translation. You know, these people do this meticulous work over long periods of time to make God's word accessible to peoples all over the globe. I mean, these are unsung heroes, if ever there were uh, any. Um, Not just Wycliffe Bible translators, but certainly uh, Wycliffe Bible translators and others who do that tedious, meticulous work. Every time we hear of the Bible being translated into another language, we know that means that for the first time, the people in that language group can fully access the complete picture of God's story. Now, think about that for a moment. Now, you and I have access to virtually every kind of Bible you could imagine, a Bible for dog lovers, a Bible for women, for small children, for left-handed people. I'm only slightly exaggerating, but for some, having the Bible in their language for the very first time is an epic (laughs) accomplishment and an epic event. It's good to take a step back and realize what this 700th Bible means. 5.7 billion people who speak 700 languages now have the Bible in the language that speaks to them best. That is a remarkable figure, and it continues to grow. We were talking uh, uh, earlier in the program about uh, support that many of these nonprofits are receiving and churches as well. Uh, if you're looking for a, a place to you know, support uh, some of these ministries, Bible translation is certainly one that should be considered. Well, the Bible, uh, the group rather, listed three recent Bible translations that could have been the 700th uh, translation. The, um, and I, I'm not sure I will pronounce these correctly, but I'm going to attempt. Um, one is a Bible that was launched in Mexico, Huacal. Well, the um, Elamui Bible launched in Malawi. Uh, or the Igedi Bible, which is used by Nigerian ethnic group. 
just three examples. It's amazing that there is so much Bible translation going on that we can't pinpoint the 700th Bible. And it continues. We live in an exciting time when the vision that all people will be able to read or hear God's word in their language is becoming a reality. Well, the American Bible Society also celebrated the news and they pointed out that Bible translation has rapidly increased in the past few decades due to advances in translation technology and an unprecedented level of partnership among Bible translation agencies. Well, over the last four years alone, the American Bible Society has funded translations in 328 languages. This is over the last four years, most of them completed by local translators working the group's fellowship of United Bible Societies. We are grateful to God, our ministry partners, the financial partners whose generosity makes this kingdom work possible. The American Bible Society's CEO, Robert Briggs, points out, still, the group noted that the work is far from over as more than half of the world's 7,000 languages do not have access to any form of scripture. And 1.5 billion people still are unable to read the full Bible in their own language. There is work yet to be done. The American Bible Society said its goal is to translate scripture into 100% of the world's living languages by 2033. It's not that far off. Modern technology has allowed the Bible, the best-selling book in the world, to reach millions in new and innovative ways. The number of languages with the full Bible has nearly doubled in the past 30 years, from 351 in 1991 to 700 in 2020, according to uh, the most recent stats. In September, the first ever complete Bible became available in American Sign Language, and that allows the world's 70 million people who are deaf to access Scripture for free. According to the um, State of the Bible 2020 report released earlier this year by the Barna Group and the American Bible Society, most Bible readers, 65%, prefer a printed version. Millennials are about as likely to read the Bible digitally at 52% as they are in print at 48%. Americans who live in a household that owns a Bible, 77% of the population, are as likely to use a Bible app as those without a Bible in their household at 56% versus 55%. I can remember so vividly traveling with the Bible League years ago into countries where the Bible was not permitted. On several occasions, I was a part of a group that smuggled Bibles into uh, countries where they were not permitted. At one point, I was uh, discovered having a suitcase full of Bibles, and it's a story I think I've shared here before, and maybe I will on another occasion. It was a terrifying encounter. We were told not to associate with the other Americans who had uh, traveled with us, um, making our way through customs into the country because we didn't want all the Bibles confiscated. And I had what I can describe as a supernatural um, experience, uh, and to make a long story short, bringing every single one of the Bibles that I had brought from the United States into the country, despite the fact there was a gaggle of uh, customs officials all arguing in a language I couldn't understand over what to do with the Bibles in my bag. Um, Anyway, I remember quite vividly being in an audience with believers Uh, some of whom were very old, who had prayed for decades to have a Bible of their own, had prayed for decades. Now, they had itinerant preachers who might have portions of the scripture who would teach from what they had uh, on occasion. Uh, There were people who came together for worship and prayer and Bible study, what they had. 
But these were Bibles that we brought for individuals to possess that were all their own. And I thought about how many Bibles we have in our household, how many translations, how many versions, all the resources that help better understand the Bible, uh, the maps and all of the um, the other information that that's useful to us. And handing a Bible, and I remember one um, Asian woman, I believe we were in China or Vietnam, handing her that Bible for the first time, giving it to her to possess for herself, and she wept openly. I mean, it was just the most moving thing I'd ever uh, witnessed. Um, and to think that people for the first time all around the globe have the uh, possibility of the Bible in their language, their first, uh, their love language is uh, very exciting to consider. So continue to pray for the work of Bible translators. If you have access to any of them, you know somebody who's doing it or you're supporting a ministry, consider sending a note of, um, of gratitude and encouragement uh, because the work is being done and it's uh, it's exciting to consider. Well, we're just out about out of time. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.